and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with more than 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and it's almost time for my nunchen. Your nunchen? My nunchen is a snack between meals. Oh, I love those. Yeah, um, and I'm trying to get in enough of all of the nutrients I need in a day, and sometimes that requires having a prune. Um, interesting choice. Yeah, but they're kind of filling. They taste good. Yeah, they're just dried plums. Yeah, and they're, you know, full of fiber. Yeah, people eat, like, raisins and stuff all the time. I don't know why people give such a bad rap to prunes. I know. I don't either. I think it's just affiliated with, like, older people or something. But what's wrong with older people? Absolutely nothing. I love my grandparents. Definitely. R.I.P. Some of them. Yes. That just took a turn. So, sorry. (laughs) So, welcome to Addicted to Murder, like Courtney said. And please excuse Courtney. She has been getting over a cold so she's doing her best yes so my voice probably sounds different and you may or may not hear different coughing and or throat clearing and or drinking hot tea throughout this episode but I will not apologize for it Mm -mm. because there's nothing wrong and it is not my fault that I'm sick I appreciate you um being here so we can so we can record even though you're feeling under the weather a little bit that's why we didn't release anything this week yeah or this last week was because of my illness, but it's we're on good. the upswing. We all get to take a sick day. Um, before we get started, I just want to say that the last episode we did on Richard Rogers, I um, said the name wrong in the book we were using because I didn't have it in front of me. It's actually just called Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York by Elon Green. And I think I said Last Call Killer. So I just wanted to throw out the proper um, reference. All right. Sounds good. And then um, before we get going, um, I have a question. It is your turn it for is a my question. question. Um, so, Courtney, if you could interview any celebrity, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, boy. I. Gosh, you'd think I'd have good answers for this, but. Do you want me to go first? Yes, please. Okay, I, I, did have, I did have a little time to think about this. Um, I love Billy Joel. Oh, He's like my favorite from when I was a kid to now. The Piano Man, the original songwriter in my mind um, from Humble Beginnings. Um, he's, you know, had a lot of tough things happen to him. He suffered from addiction, alcoholism, Um some traumas early on in his career. Um, he had all of his money stolen from his accountant at one point that was somewhat related to him. And, you know, through all that stuff, he comes back swinging and he doesn't really apologize for himself. And he's like, this is who I am and I'm doing the best I can. And I'm still putting out good music. And I, and he was born in 1949. So he's, you know, not a young, young guy anymore. And I would just love to pick his brain. I really like Billy Joel. I also love Billy Joel, so I think that is a fantastic answer. Thank you. That I'm a little jealous I didn't think of. Well, do you want me to press pause for a minute so you can think? Yes, please. Okay. And we're back, Courtney. All right. I figured out who I would talk to. Okay. This might sound a little bit strange, but I kind of want to talk to Mr. Rogers. Oh, okay. Good old Mr. Fred, Fred Rogers. I think his impact that he had on children's programming and the way that we think about and communicate with kids um, was just really profound and 
everybody knew him and everybody loved him. And he just seemed like such a genuine person that I just feel like he would be the greatest person to like be a friends with. I totally watched him when I was a kid. Me too. Yeah. And I mean, although he's like, you know, when you watch it, it's kind of not tacky or silly, but you know, like he takes his shoes off every time and puts his new mm-hmm. shoes on and everything. That's like, you know, whatever, but it was comforting. It absolutely yeah. is. And, you know, seemed like he really cared about kids, which is nice. So that's that's a good one. Yeah. I have not seen the Tom Hanks movie yet. I haven't either. I think I'm a, like, I know it got really good reviews, mm-hmm. but I'm also just like a little bit scared of like. Yeah. It might disillusion you maybe or. I don't know. Just yeah. might make me see him differently. Right. Which I guess isn't a bad thing either. Well, they say if you meet your idols, a lot of times you're disappointed. Right. Although I don't think I would be with Fred Rogers. He seems... Genuine. Genuine. Right on. Okay, good question. Thanks. Kind of interesting in a way, (laughs) us being a bit... I mean, I consider us kind of feminist that neither one of us picked a woman, but... Oh, well. There are a lot of women that I thought of, but I just wasn't really sure... Mm Mm-hmm. What I would say to them. Yeah. Like, I admire them all, but I don't know if there would be things that I'd want to know. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe next time we'll we'll spe- specify it to a woman. Ooh. And, like, you know. Yes. 20 episodes from now when people forget this question. We'll figure it out. Um, so, um, we are going to do the maybe biggest piece of shit that we have done. So, Courtney, thank you. Um, I don't even know that I have heard of this guy, the moniker of him, which is the Beast of British Columbia, but his name is Clifford Olson. Um, I can't remember. Did you hear of him? I mean, I know you picked him, but was it someone you've heard of, or did you just randomly look up serial killers and find him? It really was another random choice, kind of similar to yours, just browsing books about serial killers on Amazon, and um, the book that we used for, for research called The Beast popped up in recommendations. Yes, it's The Beast by Ryan Green, a chilling true story of a psychopathic child killer. So, sorry if I just gave a little bit away, but, um, and he is awful. Terrible person. Awful. Um, and I don't know if, if part of my reaction to him, besides just knowing the facts, is the way this author presented it, because it was almost like he was doing it from his mind. You know what I mean? Like, it was presented in a different way than some of the other books we've read. Right, right. Um, so I imagine the author does take a few liberties with just kind of um, changing the narrative a little bit than what might have happened. I can't really, I can't really explain what I'm trying to say. You'd have to read the book, um, but it's right. He take he makes some inferences, yeah. definitely based on like what killer may have been thinking or feeling right. at the time, or why he may have done something. Yeah. So um, without further ado, we'll just get right into it. So Clifford Olsen was born January 1st, 1940, and his dad was Clifford Sr., and his mom was Leona Olsen, and it was in Vancouver, British Columbia. The family would have two more boys and a girl over the next five years. Clifford Sr. was a milkman, and Leona was a homemaker. Money was tight, but the family was not poor. They didn't lack for food or clothing or shelter. And when World War II started, Clifford Sr. signed up for service, and year by year, he became more and more of a shadow of his former self. 
Um, when the war finally ended, Clifford Sr. was a changed man. You know, once he was loud and proud and when he was done um, fighting and he came home, he was quiet and he was withdrawn and his priorities had changed and he just really wanted to be with his family and he just wanted to feel safe and secure. So eventually through programs for veterans, the family was able to move to a new spacious home in Richmond. By this time, Clifford Jr. was five years old and ready to start school. Um, he was a stocky and short kid who had poor social skills. The other kids in his class, they all grew up together in this town. They all went to preschool together, and Clifford was new in town, so you know he was all automatically kind of like the odd man out. And he felt isolated from the group. He felt rejected. And he would hold on to that rejection for his whole life. He would take his bad mood out on his family at home. And, quote, there was no outlet for his frustration. And he certainly didn't have enough emotional maturity to discuss the matter with his family or to work through his feelings himself, end quote. In fact, after only a week of school, Clifford picked a fight. And he lost that fight. He wasn't a very good fighter. He continued to pick fights at school, and he continued to lose. He would then get made fun of, and he was eventually known as the, quote, class punching bag. Courtney, um, can you share your thoughts here? This is awfully aggressive uh, behavior, and this child seems very angry. There's definitely something going on um, with Cliff from an early age. You know, no child is going to have control over their anger all the time. And feeling rejected and left out would make any child upset. So those feelings are normal, you know. And some minor aggression, like pushing and hitting, is even normal for kids in, like, the preschool, kindergarten kind of years um, until they learn not to do that. Um, but constant fighting, especially, you know, when Cliff was not actually getting his needs met by the fighting, is a little abnormal. So meaning, like, the fights weren't making him feel better. Right, yeah, he wasn't getting the, like, respect or acceptance mm -hmm. or, you know, things that he was searching for through right. fighting. Well, he wasn't a very good student, and through the years, he barely made it through his courses. He was offered additional aid to help him with his studies, but he just flatly refused any help. He wasn't able to focus on his schoolwork, and he didn't seem to care to try to do more than the minimum needed to push through his grade levels. At the same time, his brothers were at the same school, and they were doing well. And I'm sure this, you know, pissed him off even more. He was still fighting all the time, and he was still losing those fights. His dad didn't really say much about this. He just sort of sat in silence, and his mom would just try to mend the clothes. They were always getting ripped from his fighting. So it sounds like Clifford Sr. was able to spend a lot of time with his children, and that this was very important to him. He would take the kids to the park and help his wife around the house. He didn't gamble or drink. And he really tried to be a good dad. And his other children blossomed through their parents' love, but little Clifford just did not seem to be interested. Clifford was just a mean kid who seemed to feel that the world owed him something. The only time that Clifford seemed to be interested in anything he did with his father was when his dad took him to a boxing match in town. When a boxer got injured and blood was seen, Clifford would light up like a Christmas tree. Apparently, it was really the only time that Clifford seemed to be really excited about anything. After the match, little Clifford could talk about nothing else. So his dad decided to take him down to the local gym and signed him up for boxing lessons. Clifford excelled at boxing, and it got to the point where they were going to enter him into competitions with other boxers. I guess there was even talk about him trying out for the Olympic team a few years down the road. Clifford was really good. However, Clifford didn't really care about being a potential Olympian, but more about that he could now beat the crap out of all those boys that had wronged him. 
He had been in dozens of fights and had been knocked around by over 100 boys at this point in his life. And this isn't an exaggeration. Clifford could name all the boys in chronological order, and after he learned how to fight, he started to go through that list. Quote, one by one they lost, and with everyone that fell, Clifford Jr. felt better about himself. So he took great pleasure in his revenge and absolutely loved that people now feared him. Courtney, any diagnosis you want to explore at this point? I'm getting a bit of a Harvey Kerrigan vibe, you know, better to be disliked but respected than ignored or thought weak. Yeah, so while I was researching about Cliff, there were a few diagnoses that kind of crossed my mind when thinking about how I might treat a kiddo who maybe came into therapy with those behaviors. Um, So the first one that came to mind is called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. Um, And now... DMDD, as it's called, um, was not even a diagnosis back when Cliff was growing up. Um, It wasn't included in the DSM until the fifth edition came out in 2013. So it's a fairly new... Yeah, that's like the most current edition, right? Um, Almost. There's one that that revised after that. Um, But I think it kind of fits um, what we were seeing. So to be given the diagnosis of disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, a child must display severe recurrent temper tantrums that include verbal or physical aggression, are out of proportion to the circumstance, and are not developmentally appropriate. For example, like a 10-year-old who has a tantrum like a toddler might have. Um, These must occur at least three times a week for more than a year. And in between the outbursts, the child will display generally an irritable or grumpy mood. Um, And so I do feel like this describes Cliff's temperament and behaviors kind of through his elementary school years. Um, And so this is considered a childhood diagnosis, and we wouldn't really give it to an adult. Um, Most kids either kind of grow out of this behavior or it develops into another problem such as like bipolar disorder or a personality disorder. For Cliff, you know, when he learned to channel his anger and aggression into boxing and discovered his newfound love and joy of, you know, beating up other kids, it definitely crossed over from DMDD into what I would probably describe as conduct disorder. Um, And just a reminder from previous episodes, conduct disorder is kind of the childhood diagnosis that's the precursor for antisocial personality disorder in adults. And so let's say that the diagnosis you just get, DMDD, yes. um, is that something treated with therapy usually or medications? Um, or? Typically it would be like a combination between um, like therapy and like a mood stabilizing medication. Okay. Well, so after Cliff established himself as a bully, his boxing interest dwindled. He was more interested in this, you know, instant gratification of beating up kids who had wronged him than working for a fight that may happen down the line with another trained boxer. At this time, Clifford hormones went the way that, you know, young men's tend to go. He was very interested in sex, but besides the girls being somewhat impressed by his boxing and violent behavior, he didn't offer much else. He was still socially awkward and wasn't, quote, conventionally attractive to his peers. He had a hard time doing more than an awkward conversation with a girl at school, even. Clifford was spending some time with his new found quote friends they weren't really friends more like people who wanted to use Clifford for his muscle through these friendships he learned how to be a smooth talker Um, he was also you know somewhat self-deprecating and he learned that seeming to be humble got people to trust you more than being you know slick like a car salesman Clifford dropped out of school at age 16 to the delight of his teachers and most of his peers 
He used his newfound charm on his parents and convinced them that he would succeed more at working than finishing school. He talked them into it, and he got a job at a local racetrack. You know, he was just supposed to take money for the bets, but eventually he would intentionally drop hints to the bettors to sort of manipulate the odds. He would alter the betting records if needed, but ultimately he could hedge the bets and make money himself. He was a strong boxer, so if the patrons got mad, they were just too afraid to confront him. But he soon grew tired of this gig and wanted to make more money. He looked up some of his old shady friends from the past and integrated himself into their illegal goings-ons. And at first, he was again like a hired muscle, much like he was in school. But eventually, you know, he became a thief, and he started mugging drunks for their pocket money. Then he started to rob homes. He was eventually caught by the police in the act of breaking into a house and was arrested. His family used up all their savings to get him a lawyer. But he was ultimately placed into a juvenile home for boys called the New Haven Borstal Correctional Center in Burnaby. Burnaby. He would serve there until he was 18, so it was like a nine-month sentence. Courtney? You know, I don't have too much to say other than you just described the textbook description of like a child with conduct disorder turning into a young adult with antisocial personality disorder, right? Chronic disregard for the rights of others, engaging in illegal activities, endangering the safety of others, dishonesty, impulsivity, and aggression, and, you know, a nice charming or glib persona. So just checks all the boxes. Manipulation. Yep. (laughs) Well, Clifford did not like his new digs. It was all rules all the time, and he grew to hate all of the guards and teachers at, you know, the juvenile facility for making him do things he didn't want to do. He really seemed to have a huge problem with authority. He picked right back up as being the big bad bully. But this new prison-like setting afforded him even more outlets than fighting, and it wasn't long before Clifford was raping several of the kids in the institution with him. He was deriving great pleasure from these rapes, it seemed. Quote, as a 17-year-old at the top of the pecking order, Clifford Jr. was offered up the cream of the crop. The most feminine-looking boys in the, in the Borstal were set aside for his use, and his reputation protected them from the predators of lesser rapists. Though in his stereotypical, uncaring way, he quite frequently allowed others in his clique to violate them all the same. Okay, Courtney, when I first read this, I like my tummy dropped a little bit. You know, the thought of a 17 year old boy raping other boys and then passing them off to his friends like they were nothing is just, it's gross. It's appalling. It's sick. This makes me, you know, really ponder what happens in these juvenile detention centers. It sounds terrible and just a breeding ground for more criminal behavior and more trauma. What are your thoughts? Now, one thing we need to remember is that Cliff was sent to a juvenile detention center in 1957. Um, Standards of care, supervision, and safety measures for prisoners were all much less regulated and stringent back then um, compared to how a juvenile facility would be now. Not to say that the current, you know, detention centers are, you know, perfect or that sexual abuse does not happen. Um, But just remembering that it was a different time um, where the standards were different. Um, But as for Cliff's behavior... Clearly, it establishes him as a sexual predator with no regard or care for anybody but himself. And I have no doubt that he was the source of severe traumatization for the other boys jailed with him. And it's horrible. Well, Clifford made his escape from Borstrol. And it sounds like just like in his school, the teachers and the students and the guards and inmates were just happy he was gone. Like nobody liked this dude. He basically jumped the fence and took off running. He made it to the waterfront and stole a boat. 
He was hoping to cross state lines or province lines. Um, He didn't get very far. The police found him and surrounded the boat. For this escape attempt, the judge decided to put him into an adult prison and added two more years to his sentence. He was um, transferred to Haney Correctional Facility in British Columbia. At this new place, he was a much smaller fish in a much larger pond. Still, he was quick to show that he was a fighter and was, you know, somewhat left alone. Quote, he managed a few rape attempts against weaker inmates who were similarly abandoned in the system, but he never had the lasting power required to gain any sort of monopoly on them. Courtney, I don't know why I'm surprised that these people we study have no regard for lives other than their own. Still, it's hard for me to process this type of thinking and living. Because the guards knew about his previous escape, he was watched closely and he had limited freedom compared to the other inmates. Interestingly, the guards soon discovered that Clifford was actually a good prisoner if they just stopped telling him what to do. He didn't necessarily have a problem with the routines and protocol of prison, just with the authority figures telling him to do it. Any thoughts? So, yeah, this last part about his resistance to authority, it's actually a very common part of antisocial personality disorder. You know, the antisocial word, you know, doesn't mean that a person doesn't like people or has no friends. Um, It refers to engaging in behavior that moves against social expectations and norms. And, you know, the acceptance and following of some kind of authority is really kind of what all authorities are based on. Um, So the instinct in anyone with antisocial personality disorder being told what to do is to rebel. Um, even if it's a small, inconsequential thing, or even something that is in the person's best interest, if they're told to do it, like their automatic response is going to be no. Well, because he couldn't bully himself into having a pleasant stay at the prison, he decided to try something new. He became a narc, a rat, and even more despicable human than he was. He, was get the, he would get the trust of his inmates, and then he would use any useful information that he acquired and tell the guards or the warden. Because of all the tattling he was doing, he got almost half of his sentence commuted. He was released back into society early. Clifford went back to his family and back to his old ways. He only stayed with his parents for a short period of time before he struck it out on his own. Within a few weeks, he was picked up by the police for burglaries that they were able to get him on. He was sent to a new prison, this time with a substantially longer sentence, the British Columbia Penitentiary, a maximum security prison. While there, Clifford got to share share his cell with a serial rapist named Gary Marcou. The book made it sound like he was put into the cell on purpose so that, you know, Gary would brutalize Clifford. But that didn't happen because Clifford was able to use his charm and befriend Gary. And now Clifford had a new plan. He would get his cellmate to tell him stuff he could use to get out early. And his plan worked. He got Gary to tell him about a girl he had raped and murdered that he had not been charged for. However, without evidence, the guard said his information was useless. But that didn't stop Clifford. He got his cellmate drunk on toilet gin, and he got him to sign a confession that was written on a paper towel. You know, this worked. Gary was, Gary the, you know, rapist, serial rapist, was tried and convicted. He got a life sentence and was transferred to another prison. And Clifford saw a big reduction in his sentence. But he still had some time to serve, and now he was a known narc in the prison. Courtney, do you have any thoughts? Any updates on your diagnosis? You know, Cliff is showing in every way possible um, that the only thing he cares about is himself and what makes his life easier. And that every decision is about the most immediate comfort in the room. 
So, you know, snitching on cellmates helps him get out of prison sooner. But he didn't necessarily think about the longer-term consequences of what other prisoners might think or do to him because of it. Yeah, in the, in the meantime. Right. Well, one night there was a prison riot, and Clifford used this to escape a second time. He just walked out the front doors and then took off. It took several days to even figure out that Clifford was missing. He was found by a police dog hiding in a blackberry bush in the forest area outside of Richmond. He was returned to the penitentiary, but only a year was added to his reduced sentence. But he was not done trying to get out of there, so he tried another tactic. He cut himself with a razor and got himself admitted to a local hospital for those injuries. While in the citizen hospital, he waited until the guards were not paying attention. He got out of bed, stole another patient's clothes, and then walked out of the hospital. This time, he was determined to cross the border into the U.S. of A. At some point, he ran into a couple of teenagers who he threatened with a gun. They took off and told the police what had happened. The description they gave matched Clifford, so search parties went the way that the kids had told him to go. He had actually made it into America, and he saw the search party looking for him. So he lay low, like on the forest floor, and covered himself with leaves. Um, he got caught, though, again by a police dog. I guess Clifford dropped his gun when this happened and decided he couldn't kill a dog for being a dog. Courtney, is that kind of weird, the fact that he the, that he wasn't going to kill a dog for being a dog, that he has no regard for human life? Not necessarily. Um, to me, it seems kind of as though this whole escape and police chase is just a big game to Cliff. You know, I think he enjoyed it and that he kind of always knew that the game was going to end with him getting caught eventually. So when the dog found him, it was just another inevitable part of the game. You know, there was no need for him to harm the dog. Uh, I mean, that's my theory anyway. Yeah, I mean, the um, at least the research we know, who knows, doesn't show that he did the, you know, the triad, dark triad when he was younger. Right. I mean, maybe he did, but there was nothing that I found that suggested that. Right, exactly. So maybe he didn't hate animals or want to see them. I don't know. Can't right. figure this dude out. <laughs> Um, I also want to point out that, like, it to me, this is another one of those killers, like um, Randy Woodfield, who actually had good parents and a good upbringing, but maybe mm-hmm. just was wrong upstairs in the head. I don't know. Yeah, just wired differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now um, Clifford was taken to an American institution, but then transferred back to the old uh, British Columbia Penitentiary. Clifford would make one more escape attempt, which also led to years added onto his sentence, but then he kind of gave up on that. I guess life got a little better in prison after this because all of his escape attempts made him, you know, popular with the prisoners. He had good stories to tell. Clifford was a pretty model prisoner after he stopped trying to get out, and eventually he was released on good behavior, in part because the prison was falling into disrepair and they had to release some prisoners. He got out for a short time before he was thrown right back in for drunk driving. Clifford again began narking on his fellow inmates, and again, this shortened his sentence, and he was out. So now he is out, but really doesn't have a lot of skills on the outside, so he does what he's become pretty good at. He becomes a police informant. He now narks on his so-called friends on the outside. Quote, from then on, his relationship with the police was always transactive rather than combative. So Clifford was able to get out of most of the crap he was doing with the police, you know, because they would kind of like, turn their turn the other way or whatever let him get you know because he was giving them so much valuable information but occasionally they just couldn't cover up his crimes or help him out of it so he did go back into jail off and on and one of these stints in the prison um it's a new prison because the old bc got shut down 
got him in the hospital for real reasons this time. He got busted by inmates for being a narc, and he was stabbed five times by these inmates. So apparently the stabbings weren't life-threatening in themselves, but the inmates had slathered poop all over the shiv, and then he got raging infections. Okay, when I learn about the stuff that happens in prison, I'm like, oh my God, gross, right? (laughs) But uh, by the time he got out of the infirmary, he was up for parole. So I think he was in the infirmary for a long time fighting off those infections. So now, you know, Clifford's out again. Courtney, I'm going to stop here today. So is there, you know, give us whatever you want to say. You know, I have to say in general... I am not really a big fan of like the three three strikes law that exists in some states that give mandatory life sentences for people with three separate felony convictions. But I think I would make an exception for Cliff. You know, we haven't even gotten into the murders yet, and he's already destroyed so many lives. And, you know, out of his adult life, he spent more days in prison than not in prison. Mm -hmm. So... I feel like that law was maybe made for him. <laughs> they just didn't know it yet. Yeah, I mean, I he really does not give a shit about anyone but himself because the fact that he becomes a narc is just like, what? You know, isn't there honor among thieves? I mean, literally, he's a thief. Mm-hmm. Yep, not when you, you know, are anti-social, a psychopath yeah. and antisocial and yeah, have no morals at all. Right. Um. So, yeah, we're going to stop there today. We'll pick up next time um, with his next bout of stuff this is going to be a three-parter yes so you know bear with us um courtney it is your time for social media it is so let's see if i can remember all of them um we love to hear comments feedbacks feel free to like subscribe recommend all of those various things on all of our platforms if you want to shoot us an email you can find us at addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com you can find us on Instagram at Addicted to M Podcast, or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Thank you, Courtney. Um, yeah, I guess that's all we got to say today. So everyone stay safe and dry. It's very, 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 very wet here finally in the Willamette Valley. I mean, it is November. The old Willamette Valley, Willamette. So, all right, everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.